Hey, real quick, just wanted to let you know about my brand new book. It's called The Recording Mindset. This book gives you the step-by-step guide for creating pro-quality recordings from your home with ease. And it's going to allow you to know exactly what gear to use, how to position your microphones, and how to get the best sounds for your unique songs. That allows you to confidently create music that competes with your favorite records and do it fast. And so inside of this book, you're going to discover all the techniques and tactics needed to get mix-ready results right at the source. This means you're not going to have to fix it in the mix or spend hours trying to find the perfect settings. And as a result, you'll not only end up with tracks that require little to no post-processing, but it's also going to save you time and allow you to have way more fun throughout the whole process. So if you're interested in learning more about how to create pro recordings from your home studio, grab a copy of the book, visit therecordingmindset.com to get your copy today. Now back to the episode. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Now, at the time of me making this recording, I just got back, like literally two days ago, from a week-long vacation in Mexico, which was so awesome. It was great to escape the cold winter weather that we have here and to actually see some sunlight and be able to wear some shorts. It was really nice. Plus, it was also my wife and I's first vacation without our daughter, and uh, I love my daughter. She's amazing. But I also love sleep, and it was great to sleep in, too. So uh, it was definitely a trip that was uh, well-needed, and we were there for a wedding for one of my wife's cousins, and the wedding went great. It was just all around, it was an awesome time, and I'm glad that we got to go do that. Now, that said, though, because of this vacation, some stuff got shifted around in our schedule, and because of that, I wasn't able to record a new interview for this week's episode. But rather than leave you high and dry, I wanted to throw back to one of my favorite episodes of the podcast. This is one of the earlier ones. This is episode number 38, where I recorded an interview with David Bendeth. And if you're not familiar with David, David is an amazing engineer. He's worked with artists such as Paramore, Breaking Benjamin, Bring Me the Horizon, I Prevail, and a whole bunch more. And I just love his production style. His records always sound so massive. That Paramore Riot album, if you've ever listened to that, you know that the snare on that record is such an iconic snare, and it just sounds so huge. And I I really do feel like that, that particular album inspired a lot of rock albums to follow, especially when it comes to drum tones. So yeah, in this interview, we cover a lot of ground, and we talk about a lot of different topics, and I'm excited for you to check this one out. Now, like I mentioned earlier, this episode is from episode number 38, and I know some of you are just discovering the podcast now, and maybe you haven't had a chance to go back to the earlier stuff and check out all the awesome episodes that we have there. We're going to try to put out some more replay episodes in the future, just so that that way we can highlight some of my personal favorite episodes that we recorded. But while you wait, if you have some extra time, definitely make sure to go back and check out some of the earlier stuff because there are tons of episodes full of gold that you may have missed. And this episode may be one of those examples. So with that said, I'm really excited for you to check this one out. Whether you've heard this episode before or not, this is a great one. It's one of my personal favorites. So with that said, here's my interview with David Bendeth. David Benda, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. It's great to be here today. For people who might not necessarily know your story, can you give us a little bit of background on how you got into music and how you got into production? Music, well, um, I grew up in London, England in the 60s. And of course, that was an incredible renaissance time for music. And then when I was about 12, 
sort of through my formative years, I moved to Toronto. It was great to be there because you were also getting music from the UK and America at the same time. And then eventually, about 25 years ago, I moved to New York. So I've had the the luxury of living in all three places and being involved in music in in all places. At first, listening and then and then uh, eventually playing the guitar. So my background is varied culturally, I would say. And you had originally kind of started doing your own your own music, right? Yeah, when I was about nineteen, I got signed to a record deal, uh, and I put out three albums as a solo artist under the name David Bendis, mostly known for my guitar work, although there were vocal songs. So you do play guitar. How how has that influenced the work that you've done in the studio later on? Like, how do you feel being a musician has made an impact on the work you do? I think the greatest example of, uh, of harmony in music is musicians playing together. And so I really loved getting into a studio with a drummer and a bass player and a keyboard player or multiple people and playing live and recording that energy there's, there's something about that that you cannot replace and i think if you certainly go to rock music that's the pinnacle of greatness is listening to a pink floyd or a led zeppelin or an acdc where you're hearing a band playing live in the studio it's just a great feeling and it cannot be duplicated. Absolutely. So then do you, when you're tracking, we can get into this a little later too, but when you're tracking, do you typically like to record more off the floor or do you do everybody individually? Well, music has changed very, very drastically in the last five years. It's, there's not a lot of live playing. I would say it, it sort of started to go on a downhill pace uh, very quickly, once computers came in, and obviously everybody got plugins, and was they could work from their houses. So, the studios became expensive, property became expensive, especially in the major cities, and everybody found budget ways to make records. So, I actually feel bad for a lot of people today that didn't get the opportunity to learn how to cut tape or work with a band that played together. Most of my work today is done on a computer. So, obviously, with the computer, you know, to your point, yeah, things have. Things have changed. The landscape has changed with it. But having grown up in that environment where a lot of things were on tape and the bands were jamming out live on the floor, what's made you make that shift to tracking more individually then as opposed to, you know, giving people that experience? I think the major shift has been trying to be to remain relevant. And I think as a producer, you know, it's great to get your thing to 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 do well at something. But it's really like if, if you're making the best brownies in the world and people want to eat apple pie, you know, who cares about the brownies at a certain point? It really doesn't matter. And then the other thing is getting stuck in a genre of music that's really on the outs. And that's dangerous to do, too, because music changes and, and scenes come and go. You know, the funk scene kind of came and went and then the, the, the disco scene and then the, the 90s hair metal scene and then the nirvana scene and you know now it's the hip-hop scene so you've got to remain somewhat relevant and understand what that that music is and and how it changes and know how to make it when it comes and looking back at your discography and and having listened to some of your solo music as well you have definitely made that evolution in your career it sounds like earlier in, in your career you were focused a little bit more on it sounds like some of your music was pretty funky and, and more kind of, you know, poppier, laid back, kind of lighter rock music, maybe. And 
now you've moved a little bit more towards some heavier genres. Is that because of these these trends in music? Like, do you ever see yourself getting into like the hip hop world? Because then that's the thing. <laughs> I know this is going to sound crazy. Yeah, my, my first love, actually. I mean, I'll, I'll just tell you the story real quickly. Sure. So I grew up listening to, to British pop music, you know, Cliff Richard and the Shadows and Helen Shapiro and Dusty Springfield and all these artists that were kind of of a, of a copy of American soul artists, but they were sort of white British people. And then when I moved to Canada, you know, the rock scene, it was the 60s. So it was Jimi Hendrix and Cream and Led Zeppelin. And so, you know, I went through that scene and then somebody that was a great musician sat me down in a room when I was about, I'm, I want to say like 16, 17, and said, look, your music is crap. All this, this rock stuff is crap. If you want to hear good music, you should go back to the masters of the 50s and the 60s here. And, and then he sort of sat me down and played me. He got me high. First of all, he got me really high. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to play Bitches Brew by Miles Davis. And, and that record really blew my mind. Like, I, I couldn't believe how, how crazy it was. A very experimental record and very daring record played with the best musicians in the world at the time. You know, Cherby Hancock and Wayne Shorter and Lenny White and all these great people. And so that really opened up my whole world. And then I sort of stopped thinking about blues guitar for a minute, which is which was my main thing because I love the blues. And somebody once told me if I couldn't play blues guitar, I couldn't play guitar, which is also very true. I believe that. And sort of now it was jazz. And, and so my goal was to try and do something more jazz and experimental, which is what my first record was as an artist. So the evolution of my music sort of started very early in my career, and it very much changed. Now, when you say about you've looked at my discography, there's a lot of rock bands on there. There's a lot of warp. You know, it goes from what Kill Switch Engage, Breaking Benjamin to Red Jumpsuit to Paramore. I never asked for a lot of these bands. They came to me. So it was like, you know, what what did I really want to do? I wanted to make experimental jazz records and soul records like Earth, Wind and Fire. And I ended up doing, you know, Papa Roach and, and <laughs> Bring Me the Horizon. I don't know. It's, it, it just happened. And I can't really tell you why. I just think, but maybe my mixing got better. And certainly maybe it was my my arrangements or my writing. I'm not sure. But it, it, you kind of go where the, the where the waves and the wind tell you to go, especially if you're making a living doing it. But can I tell you, it, it was something that was my plan, my goal? No, not at all. That makes sense. And it, it certainly seems to be kind of your career trajectory as well to just go where the wind goes. And, you know, it sounds like you've been not only an artist, but you've had experience in the A&R role. And then from production, you've experimented in a lot of different genres there. So it seems like you're you're very much of that kind of headspace of just go where the wind goes. I'll tell you what it was. You know, it was a matter of survival. It's a matter of survival, staying around music and being close to it, sometimes doing things that you didn't want to do. But at the same time, you knew you had to do them because you were in a lineup and you had to have some kind of success where you could continue being around music. So there was never quite a good marriage between, you know, music and business. It really wasn't married ever. It was always a nightmare. It was always a train wreck. 
as we found out later on now, we're, we're all fighting for our rights as writers and producers and artists with all of these streaming companies. It's never really been any different. We were fighting with the labels before. I mean, I took a job at the label just to see what the hell was really going on. I, I spent 18 years at a label. I was a staff producer. I was mostly making records. You know, most of the time I wasn't, you know, sitting in an office all the time. I was I was in the studio. But I wanted to get a very one of my friends told me the other day that I've had nine careers. And I always thought that that was funny. And then I sort of thought about it and I went, well, that's not that funny. It's actually true. And so I've been able to get I, I wouldn't say I have a really amazing knowledge of one thing. But I've got a very well-rounded knowledge of many things. And I think that kind of makes me and defines what I do. And I'm sure that experience comes through in your work every day. Yeah, sometimes it's really depressing, though, because you know what's going to happen. And you know the business. And so it's like you're doing things like I've had a lot of success, a lot of big records that sold millions. And I can honestly tell you, I never knew that one of them was going to do it. It was all about the timing and the management and the, the record company and the fans. I don't think we ever sort of sat down and said, let's make a hit. You know, it's like, let's just try and make a good song. I'd love to kind of just quickly visit your time in the A&R role, because I, I imagine that being in that kind of position, you're probably being exposed to a lot of new artists, a lot of new music and, and trends in the music. And you know, how how has that experience maybe you can share a little bit of insight into like kind of what that role looked like for you and then how it's how it's influenced the, the productions that you do now. I was married when I was really young and I was playing, you know, in bars <laughs> and I, all of a sudden the baby appears. And now it's like, OK, you know, you can't make two hundred dollars a week for the rest of your life and play six nights a week in a bar and travel. It was pretty earth shattering. I could barely pay for diapers and, and, and milk. It started to hurt. And somebody said to me, you should get a job. And I was like, forget it. I'm not getting, you know, there's no way I'm going to get a job. And then it took its toll on me. And then by the time I was, I don't know, I want to say 28, 29, and I toured for 10 years solid because I was out playing bars when I was 18, 17, maybe even younger. I could tell some stories about that, too, because I wasn't even supposed to be in a bar. But I was lying and telling them, you know, I was, I was whatever I was, 18. But it was a very shrewd wake-up call. And all of a sudden, I find myself in a corporate environment. My first job was at CBS Records in Toronto. And I was, I was next thing I knew, I was working on a Platinum Blonde record. Right, not, I wasn't writing, I was producing and a and ring it. And then I ended up producing and writing uh, with the band. And so... It, it was it was it was like really weird. And then I had to interact with the American company, which there was a whole sort of thing between the American company and the Canadian company. We had Loverboy. We had Larry Gowan at that time, you know, Platinum Blonde. We had some pretty good acts. And so I signed some acts. And uh, then I brought an act in. You know, I brought in Katie Lang to the label. That was a wake up call because. I think I had her on a contract for 25 grand and they were all excited about it. And then the, my boss turned around right before she signed the deal and said, well, we have to get the Americans involved because she doesn't write her own music. I'll never forget. I was like, what do you like? We have this artist. She's incredible. She can sing and she's great. And um, 
he said, well, let's get their approval. And of course, I, had, I did have an A&R person down there, a guy called Steve Rabalski that loved her. And he tried to push the label to sign her. And then the next thing you know, they turn around and they pass because they, well, actually she passed because she said they didn't buy her lunch at a meeting that was at noon. <laughs> and that Patsy Klein had told her not to, not to do the deal. <laughs> so she ended up signing with Seymour Stein. But at that point, I didn't know that. And, and I had gone to my boss and I said to him, in true crazy musician fashion, you know, look, if you don't let me sign Katie Lang, I'm going to quit. And he was a bean counter. So he turned around to me and he said, so quit. No, it's okay. Just quit. And I, I went back to my office. I didn't have a job within like maybe it was three years. And by that time, I'd worked down at the New York office filling in for someone too in the international department. I got to know the company really well. And now I find myself quitting and then having my boss really not care. So he says, he comes into my office maybe an hour later. He says, we don't have to leave right now. Take your time, you know, go look for another job. Because I, I could see that my days were numbered there. And then, like, right before the six months was over, I got I got a call from a company called BMG, which is now Sony again, but it, it was RCA BMG at the time, and they hired me as an A&R guy. So the first signings I did there were in Canada were the Cowboy Junkies and the Crash Test Dummies, which really pissed off CBS after they filed me because there was so much money involved in both of those deals. At the end, you know, we were selling records hand over fist. And and so I went through that and then I got, because of that, my boss got hired as the president. Bob Jameson was hired as the president of RCA and he, we were at the Grammys for the crash test dummies. I think we were up for three or four Grammys that year and we didn't win anything and I was pretty upset and we ended up getting in this limo after the after the show and he, he said, you're fired. <laughs> this is it for BMG now. And I'm like, oh God, and he says, you're fired because I'm going to be the new president of RCA and I'm taking you with me. So that's, that's the story of how I got here. And that's my record company story. I mean, there's a lot I could fill in in between when I got to America. Of course, I signed Vertical Horizon at a band called SR71. And I work with Bruce Hornsby, and I ended up doing the the Elvis Presley 30 number one hits record. I mixed it and put it together, which was his biggest album. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here. I'm telling you about all my successes, much like a guy would tell you he went to the races and won. What the races that he won, but but there was there was some lost races too, obviously. And it was a very frustrating time for me, you know, because everything I thought I I had written should be. Huge, <laughs> like every A and R guy thing. Yeah, that, well, that, that's that's amazing to hear. I think that it's great that you did mention that you know there are a lot of lost races along the way because you know sometimes people lose sight of that, right? They just see the people who are succeeding and they think it, you know, it was that fast, easy race to get there. And you know, it is reaffirming to hear that kind of story of some struggles along the way. Yeah, I mean, I think with A and R, you know, it's it's a struggle because it's like you got to have one in four hit, so you better know what you're doing. And you're also gambling on people. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you the amount of incredibly talented artists that I had signed that that blew my mind creatively, but they just couldn't get it together. Some of them were scared of success. Some of them were could, couldn't write beyond a certain point. Some of them had terrible managers. You know, there's a plethora of reasons, plethora of reasons that, that somebody doesn't make it. People used to ask me all the time, what is it that defines a successful artist? 
and it's really not one thing. It's it's a combination of of determination. And and I would say, honestly, the real true test of anything in our business is based on how to rebound from failure. That's the real test. I would agree with that for sure. It's interesting to hear you say, you know, to, to focus on the team behind a person and behind an artist or a band and, and kind of that determination and resilience. Because, you know, you think of a lot of people tend to think of A&R as this role where, you know, I think there's this dream where people think that, well, if I have a great song and I get in the hands, get it in the hands of an A&R guy, I'm going to get signed and I'm going to blow up. But there is a lot more that goes into it beyond that. Most definitely. I, I think it, it's like the stars have to line up. You know, there's so many factors that have to line up. It's like it's like when an artist releases a song and, and you're supposed to surround that song with four or five different elements. The one thing would be a video. The one thing would be a tour. The one thing would be publicity. The one thing would be, you know, having a team behind you, good management and steering with publishing. And if you only have one of those five things, or two of those five things, it, it, it's not a good situation. I've seen artists with all five things or six things going for them fail miserably. But I can tell you that most of the time the success comes, most of those elements are in play. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear. And that, and that makes a lot of sense. You can't just have a great song and put it out in the world and hope that it blows up. Like, I mean, sure, like there's YouTube these days or whatever, and that's helping people become viral, but there's still more that goes into it. There's still the marketing. There's still the the maintenance that goes beyond that, right? Definitely. I mean, like I said, you've got to have those those different elements behind you, and you've got to have a good team there, just like anything else in life. You know, it's not – if you've got a new product with anything, it's not good enough just to have a good product. It never was. For sure. Now, in that A&R role, you're obviously listening to a lot of new music and you're trying to find the people that you think have that potential star power. What is it that you were looking for in that A&R role that, you know, would make a, an artist jump out to you? Was it in the songs? Was it that package? Well, first, obviously, you want to hear a song and go, that's a great song. You know, no matter what the genre of music, you, you find very quickly that it doesn't matter what's cool and hip at the time you know it's really about is it a great song because a great song can go in any number of directions um you can slow it down and have it be an alternative rock song you can speed it up and you can make a dance hit out of it it's a great song it's just a great song and that's been proven over and over again so yeah first thing you do is look for the melody and the and the i mean everybody sort of starts to say you know well, well it's the production or the mixing it's not it's the song you, you, you can produce the hell and mix the hell out of a lemon. It doesn't matter. You've got to have a great song. And so it starts with lyrics. It starts with melody. And that's what I was attracted to, first of all. That, that you know, And then you look at the package. And if, if the package, you know, the looks of the artist, if the artist has no style or, you know, there's no image to it, then you know you've got an uphill battle because that, that's really difficult to do. So, you know... I'll, back then a lot of songwriters were becoming artists you know what i mean like the richard marxes of the world the michael bolton's people that were great songwriters were becoming artists that's what what happened and if you look at that today and you apply that same method a lot of producers are artists <laughs> you know 
especially these days, it seems like, you know, the home studio market is easier to get into. So it makes sense that these musicians or these producers started as artists themselves. You know, they're just trying to record a lot of their own ideas and, and get started that way. Right. Absolutely. I, you know, I would say that, you know, the, the producer is the new artist of right now. And certainly when we look at hip hop as, a, as an example of that. You know, a lot of these artists are producing their own music. They don't need anybody. They're mixing it themselves. They're producing it. They're mastering it. They're, and they're doing it very cheaply on a computer. Yeah. So, you know, is that a great thing? Absolutely. It's fantastic. Is it detrimental to the public? Yeah, because every there's a, a glut of music coming in nonstop. So how do you know where to go to listen? And, and how do you know what's good and what's, you know, you have to go wade through piles of songs. So I'm sure being an A&R guy today would be different than it would when I did it. So you kind of had the the path of, you know, you started with the musician, being a musician, then you got into the A&R side of it, you know, supporting your family and all that stuff. At what point did, like, where did the production come into play? Well, it was always in place. I mean, every place I worked at as an A&R guy, I was in the studio all the time. So, oh, and I should also probably say, say this too. I mean, since I was 18 and I was writing my first record, one of the first things that happened on my first record uh, when I was about 21 was I had a hit record, a hit song. So I learned all about publishing when I was 21 in like 1978. So that was really a huge plus. But the whole time that I was working as an A&R guy, my outlet, which was no longer playing live as a guitar player, which I missed like every day, and the ability to write so every time I would make a new deal, as, and I made 10 deals as an A&R guy over 18 years, maybe it was less than that, maybe more like seven, I would always include the fact that I could be a writer on the outside, even though it was for an enemy company. So let's say I was working for CBS, I could sign a Warner Brothers publishing agreement, which I've never not had a publishing agreement in my career. So that's been since I'm... I'm going to be older. I'm not even going to tell you my age, but <laughs> since I was since I was 19, I've always had a publishing agreement. So I've always been writing. That's very interesting because I was looking at your discography and I noticed that there was a major chunk of the records that you'd worked on where you weren't just the producer or the engineer, but you were also a co-writer. So I was curious about how important that was for you to have that, uh, that have that outlet or the ability to co-write with other artists. You know, it's funny. My very first job as an A&R guy I, w I was making, I think, $21,000 a year, <laughs> like barely on the poverty line, which back then to me was like, you know, I hit the jackpot and I was a millionaire because, you know, when you're making $200 a week, it's not that easy. And I had my health insurance, you know, you have your health insurance and then you have, you know, those perks, an expense account, whatever you want to call it, because I was an A&R guy. Um, but, but at that time, actually, it was pretty, it was pretty bleak. My, my my life was, you know, I, I was going through a divorce and all sorts of stuff because I got married very young and I didn't really make the right decisions. But the, the next thing you know, I had a, a, a cut with Joe Cocker and a cut with Jeff Beck. And both the records came out within a year of each other. And I couldn't believe it. Like, I was like, wow, this is incredible. Like, you know, I had money coming in over and above my salary, which really made me want to write it's a, it was a big impetus for me to write because it was something i love to do after work if that makes any sense so i kept that up so did you ever feel like at some point in your career 
did you make that decision consciously of a lot of musicians, they have this pursuit of like, I want to be the rock star, I want to be the famous musician. And then especially with musicians that get into production, there's there seems to be a point in a lot of people's lives where they have to kind of make a decision about committing to the pursuit of being that rock star or just pursuing production or something else full time. So is that kind of, have you ever had that kind of conscious thought of like, okay, I, I made this decision to go pursue the production side full time. Like, was there a defining moment in your life where that happened? You know, it's so funny. You should say that I kind of did a lot of, wore a lot of hats, which does get confusing. Like, so one hat would be as a writer and then one hat would be as a producer and then one hat would be as a mixer. And so you had to define at that moment what you were going to wear, because if you start wearing two of them at the same time, you're really going to get yourself into a whole lot of trouble. And it's going to be somewhat of an ugly art kind of a approach to making records, which did happen to me on, on occasions where you're so involved in the artist that you become part of it in a, in a way that's just not healthy. And so after I sort of had bad run-ins with people and, and realized that my personality was maybe too overbearing. I, I decided to learn to separate those things clearly in my head because they, they didn't run into each other that well all the time. So then, you know, again, going back to that discography and seeing that you, you do co-write on a lot of the records you work on, at what point in the process do you discuss or determine your role on that project? Like, are you talking about it ahead of time and being like, hey, I'd love to co-write with you. I've got these ideas. Or is it something that in the process you kind of work on? It's funny. You know, I was never, ever a prolific writer that, that you know, if you look at some of the people today that are just churning out records, you know, I'm, you know, it's like it's incredible. Like they wake up in the morning at eight o'clock, have a bowl of Wheaties and like start writing songs. Like take a guy like Ryan Tedder who's an incredible songwriter. He doesn't do much else but write songs. It's really difficult to be Ryan Tedder, the producer, Ryan Tedder, the mixer at the same time. And I think it, the same thing goes for mixing. If you want to talk about the great mixers, Serban, you know, Genya, and, and, and you talk about, you know, Manny Mariquin and guys like that, they don't wake up and do anything else besides, besides mix. And so... I didn't enjoy doing one thing, is the truth. And so I enjoyed writing songs for an album as much as I did mixing one. And I enjoyed producing a record as much as I did playing guitar. So I never, I decided to, to do something that was really crazy, which was when I did producing, when I, make, when I started producing records, I tried, my whole goal was to not make any record sound like the next record as opposed to most people that would try and do a thing and get known for it. I would take on the chameleon of the song with the artist instead of making it David Bendeth, if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. So on that note, then, of making every one of your records have a different sound to it, what is it like part of your process in terms of just like the equipment that you're using that helps you get that help, helps you achieve that goal? Or are you approaching that more from like a, a songwriting perspective? Like how, how do you envision that? And do you kind of create like a like almost like a, a map of how you want to execute that during a project? That's a great question. And I'm going to tell you what I do and what I did. You know, everything in life that we experience 
comes from something else. A lot of artists wear their heart on their sleeve and are, let's just take, for an example, you too. I think it's really safe to say that without David Bowie, there would be no U2, because Bono thinks that David Bowie is the most brilliant singer and writer that's ever lived, and he wears his heart on his sleeve. Now, you could listen to The Unforgettable Fire and say, well, it has nothing to do with Ziggy Stardust or has nothing to do with Aladdin Sane, but the truth is it really does. And in, inside Bono's head, he's influenced by that. So where I'm going with this is that we're all influenced by many things, but ultimately when it comes down to writing a song, we culminate those experiences and we bring in three or four different elements. It might be the beat of George Clinton with the melody of, uh, you know, uh, Kirk Cobain. We, we wear our heart on our sleeves. And my I, my concept for making a, a record was be to sit with the artists for long periods of time and ask them what, what songs made them cry, what songs made them laugh, what songs moved them, and what songs brought back the strongest memories in their lives. And we would sit in a room for two hours and we would just play those songs. And it would give me such great insight into what they were doing. And then I would write down my four or five artists that I should keep boundaries on. So if if I was doing, let's say, Paramore, and she was telling me, Haley Williams, that she loved, um, I don't know, Panic at the Disco at the time, and, and, and she, but she also loved, you know, country music, and it was Dolly Parton's song, or whatever it was, I would... I would, or Joan Jett, she loved I Love Rock and Roll. So I would have my four sort of songs in the studio in my head. And if it didn't excite me as much as those songs did that she had played me, then I knew I was going in a wrong direction. There you go. I love that approach. It worked for me on every project because it, it kept me within the boundaries of what the artist loved. It, when I say it didn't have to sound like that, but it had to make me feel like that. And I use that approach with mixing as well. I know this probably is going to sound insane. But when I mix certain records, I would listen to certain other records for inspiration because those because that's what it should do. And if it didn't, then I was on the wrong track. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, you're, you're right. Like everyone's inspired by something. And, and I think when it comes to like reference tracks, whether it's in songwriting or in mixing, it's, you know, the artists themselves are going to be comparing their own music against the things that they love, right? That's that's their standard. Yes. So, it, like, including those references in your process and trying to emulate some of the production elements in there, I, I think that that makes total sense to have all of that. Because certain records have changed the world. You know, I, I always had my 10 records that changed the world. When I say that, they change music forever. Once that record was made, it changed everybody's life and it changed culture. And so I realized very early in my career how powerful music was. In other words, it could, it could, it was Superman to me. It, it could instantly take a snapshot of the past and it was the best time travel I had ever seen in my life. And I, I recognized and respected that power so much, the ability to be able to hear a song and have that song take you back to a moment in your life 
where you were struggling with suicide or you were struggling with your parents arguing or divorcing or you were struggling with failure at school or you were or you were remembering your first love and your first kiss. It didn't matter. The power of that was so overwhelming. And the and and the the ability to be able to time travel instantly and put yourself in a good place was 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 something I respected so much and something I tried to do in the records that I made um, to the point where I don't even believe the artists recognized how powerful it was and how powerful they were as they were writing these songs because they were young, most of them. But their feelings were very true and very real. My responsibility was to take that, capture it, much like a photographer, and then freeze it in time. That makes a lot of sense. I love that analogy of the time traveling because that's what it is, right? It's like it's just people connecting with yes. something deeper, some sort of experience, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's all it is, <laughs> you know. And then when you go to the records that have changed the world, you know, you go to, I'm going to name a bunch of records that I think have changed everything. You know, let's just say Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon has changed everything. Michael Jackson, Thriller has changed everything. You know, Nevermind by Nirvana changed everything. NWA changed everything. Miles Davis, Bitches Brew changed everything. It joined jazz and rock. Um, the Sex Pistols changed the whole culture of everything instantly. Like, so you're you're looking at seminal moments over the last fifty years that that have changed society and how we think about things politically, um, and it's incredible. You know, and it still is incredible. It, music mirrors society. It, it mirrors the times. And I've always respected the great songwriters, the ones that have the ability to reflect it without making an opinion on it. In other words, so if you want to talk about war, then go ahead, but you don't have to point fingers. You can, you, you can, you can do what a reporter for the New York Times would do or whatever, the Toronto Star, you could you could you could describe what was happening in your way without pointing fingers at somebody. And you could create a landscape and a picture scape of something without without by by just explaining it without without naming names. You could the power of that was pretty incredible. So when you're collaborating with the artists that you're working with and you're doing those co-writes, um, obviously it sounds like you have a process behind, you know, getting the inspiration for the song. But in terms of, like, do you contribute to the lyrics when you're doing these co-writes, or are you focusing yes. entirely on music? No, everything. Okay. Melody, music. And then, yeah. do you try to remove your own personal perspective from the lyrics that you're writing, or are, like, are you trying to? Whose perspective are you writing from? Are you trying to write from the artist's perspective or your own? I'm trying to realize the artist's vision. When I write by myself, I do my own vision for whatever it is I'm writing. So I'll sit here and write a whole song by myself and finish it. But when I'm writing for an artist, I, I get chameleonized into who they are, what they believe in and what they stand for and what they think is important. Because, you know, an artist has to stand for something. Any great artist in this world, if, if they don't stand for something, there's nothing there. That's how they attract the right audience, too, right? Yeah. So I, I try and morph myself into what they stand for and what they believe in. And, and, and I write a bunch of words that I should never say when I write a song or they should never say. 
because there's certain words that the the minute you use that word, it it puts them into a very run-of-the-mill category. And so you have to know a little bit about literature and reading and words that can be used to manipulate the song better without selling it out. When you get into these co-writing scenarios in production, are you often like introducing songs to these bands? Like, are you like when does this co-writing process happen? Is it because there's just not enough songs for, to make the record sound great? Like, or you know, are you discussing these? Yeah. Okay. So, so sometimes I get asked to write on a record, and other times I've been told not to write one note on a record, and the artist is fine and doesn't need my help with writing and all the songs have been written and all I have to do. So it doesn't, it, no one record is the same. Sometimes I write one song on a record. Sometimes I write, co-write, I'm going to use the word. Sometimes I co-write one song on a record. Sometimes I co-write 12 songs on a record. Sometimes I write no songs on a record. One thing with me is that it was never, ever an issue if somebody wanted to make a record and not have me write a song on it. I was perfectly fine with it. It didn't bother me at all. And if I felt like the song needed some changes, I would just tell the artist, I think you need a better bridge. You should write a better lyric because it doesn't culminate uh, what the song is about. And they would just go do it on their own. Well, it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about how sometimes when you mix all of those different hats, it doesn't always work out, right? So sometimes you do need to separate yourself from it. And Songwriting is something that's completely different. I mean, I want to try and explain it in, in the way I usually do to an artist, which is, you know, as a songwriter, you have a responsibility to serve the song, just much like the producer and the mixer do. It's it's a creation. Now, having said that, I don't necessarily believe that everybody that writes a song knows what they're doing. I happen to actually believe that we have no choice when we write it. We become what I call a lightning you know, a lightning uh, receptor and something passes through us that enables us to do something creative, which would be writing a song. And so we sit in a room with two people or one person and we bounce back and forth. And all of a sudden we capture this lightning in a bottle and it becomes a song. And so the writers of the song become the parents of, of this song. And that that means that there's a responsibility to see the song through to the end you know, to finish it and to record it and to mix it and do all those things, to put the right vocals on it, to put the right instrumentation on it, have the right arrangement, to have the right key, to have the right tempo, all of the things that go into the greatness of, of a song and realizing its its greatness. But much like parents that that, that, that have children, uh, my analogy is always that, that parents don't necessarily know how to dress their children for school. Um, and that sometimes we put brown corduroy pants and a yellow sweater on a song and it just wants blue jeans and a T-shirt or maybe it needs a tuxedo. I think that's the job as a, of a producer. A producer is supposed to realize what the song should wear and help the parents to, to, to deliver that child with all its fingers and toes. So I, I use that analogy because not every artist knows what's right for their song. And there's many different ways to do a song. So another thing I'll do is I'll try and do a song two or three different ways completely, which is very arduous to do, but has really paid off for me in certain instances. Different arrangements, different uh, 
Yes. Whatever. It's it's going to give you a different feel altogether. So if there's one that resonates a lot more than another, then that's the winner, right? I think so. And, and it's happened to me on multiple occasions where I'm, I'm supposed to do something that the song is asking me to do. But then there's something in my gut that tells me that it's just too generic. And, and it doesn't make it stand out from another song. You know, you start, as others have said, you know, with an intro and a verse and a chorus and a pre-chorus and all that other crap that goes into a song and a breakdown. But the truth of the matter is that that's not necessarily the element the song really needs. It, it needs more imagination, more thought. Yeah, you just have to experiment. You have to find what works best and, you you know, yeah. be open-minded. Yeah. You have to commit to your decision making. Yeah. At what point do you commit? Is that just like when your gut's telling you, okay, this this feels good, like this is it? It is. And you know, the problem with that is dealing outside of that. But once you start dealing with the manager and the label, and they basically turn around and say, You're out of your mind, this is not what is on the radio right now. You know, that's happened to me multiple times. It's not hip. It's not cool. Because it's not on the radio. Well, I always thought as an A&R guy, especially that that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard in my life. Because the minute you do something that's current right now and you put your record out six months later, it's no longer relevant. So the idea would be to do things that no one has done yet. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think about that a lot, too, because, you know, even though these days you can release a song right away, it doesn't mean that it's going to like get on the radio right away and you compete with all those other things. And, you know, if something out there is already doing it, then, you know, it's been done. So how do you differentiate yourself? Yeah. I mean, what makes your, your stuff stand out from the crowd? And again, I think that that's, that's got a lot to do with going to those four or five elements when you begin with to make you feel a certain way. Again, a, a great example is again, Paramore, when I was listening to the pretenders and I was listening to tragic kingdom, you know, and I was listening to, to, to Joan Jett and all those records. It had to sound like that or feel like that. And I knew that we were doing something different as I was making the record because it didn't sound like anything else. At moments it did. It did. But as a body of work, it didn't. And I think I knew, okay, this is special. I don't know if it's successful. You know, actually on that record, which ended up selling three million records, I remember turning it into the label and having them tell me I needed another song and that, that Chad Kroger from Nickelback was going to write one, which he did. And they said I didn't have a hit. They, they they were convinced there was nothing on that record that was really any good for radio. And of course, there's a, there's a song on that record 20 years ago called Misery Business that came out and was number one everywhere. So I thought it was pretty funny. You know, I've, I've learned to listen to the industry and I've learned that the industry is insane. Uh, and I think a lot of the reason, I mean, if the industry was so fucking clever, you know, why aren't they in charge and owning the, the streaming business of Spotify and iTunes right now? Why do they have a minor stake in it? And if you're supposed to be forward thinking from a technology standpoint and you're supposed to be forward thinking from a creative standpoint, why is it that you're that you're getting paid from outside sources when you own the music? It's kind of dumb. Yeah, it makes a lot so, of sense. The music business has is, is definitely never been much more about making money, certainly trying to bring in creative people. But it's kind of backfired because if they would have bought in techno technological people, people that were coding, you know, they could have built their own websites and be selling their own music, which, which now, of course, we as songwriters and producers and musicians and writers, we're all, we're all paying that price because, because – 
they forgot. So how do you go about making that argument that what you feel is right and that, you know, you're talking about that Paramore record, they're saying, well, you need more hits. And I feel like that's just such a record label thing to say, because it's obviously in their best interest to have hit songs. But like, how do you make that argument of like, look, we actually have something great here. This is something that, you know, the artist resonates with, believes in, and that we can connect with more people with. And like, how, how do you make that kind of argument? It's funny, you know, the, the label was actually the guy at the time was John Janik, who's the president now of Interscope Records, who's an incredibly talented, successful guy. Uh, and the management were strong. Um, and it was the president of Warner Brothers that was making the call that we didn't have a hit of, of worldwide Warner Brothers. What was interesting was when it came from push to shove, the 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 creative people stepped in and said, the, you know, of course, the artist looked at me when I said do a Nickelback song and almost, you know, threw books of my head <laughs> uh, and freaked out. You know, it was a nightmare. But you let it work itself out. You know, you do that. There's not much you can do in a situation like that. It's happened on multiple occasions. I always look at every experience like like that, like it, like I'll go to my Breaking Benjamin records. When I started mixing those records, everybody told me to quit mixing because my mixes were the worst things that they'd ever heard in their whole life. Um, and I and they, they sort of said, look, we're going to take all these singles that you've got on Breaking Benjamin. We're going to let. Chris Lord Algie is going to mix one and then Rich Costi is going to mix one and Andy Wallace is going to mix one and Michael Brower is going to mix one. And the next thing you know, you know, your records like chop me with five different mixers on it and six different mixers on it. David, you should go sit in the corner and learn how to mix because you really don't know what you're doing. You have no idea. That was a really good thing for me. It was a great thing for me. Anytime we have obstacles in our career that that tell us we shouldn't be doing something, it sort of triggers this inner desire to to really want to do it, even though people are telling you you suck and that you're terrible and that you should never, ever do it again. That should light your fire enough to learn how to do it properly. And I think that's what makes greatness always is the failure. Of course, it drive it motivates you more, and yeah, you get better results when you're passionate and, and about people, it. And if you start listening to people around you that, that tell you you can't do something, and, and there's some validity to it, and you ask them what it is that they don't like about what you're doing, and they give you honest feedback because they know, then you're really going to do well because you'll learn how to do it properly. Yeah, that's a really good point too. Just actually accepting feedback, which gets me to my next point. You know, now that we've got a business where everybody's satellite in their bedroom, you know, making these records, it's very difficult to have that interaction anymore because who are you getting feedback from? Well, you're getting feedback from other people that have a computer that's do it, that are doing what you do. So the actual craft of it is different than it was. And the technology is completely different than it was. And therefore, the sound of it is different. You know, right now, we're all dealing with a lot of lo-fi music, which doesn't take a lot of, you know, it, it, it's actually very difficult to make hip hop. And I'll tell you about that in a minute, because that's what I'm in the middle of right now. But but to do anything well, it's very, very difficult. But the way it's done has changed drastically. And I'm not going to say it's better or worse. It's just really, really different. And getting good on honest feedback is a lot more difficult these days. You said you're, we're currently working on something hip-hop yeah. related? So, <laughs> I, <laughs> I told you at the beginning of this, my own life has taken on many different roles. So anyway, so the, over the last year, 
I told you about those records that I made back in the 70s. They were soul records, you know. And people started, major, major producers in hip-hop started sampling my records and just stealing them. And like using 30, 40 seconds of it and putting it on a hip-hop song. And then slowing it down and then putting their own beat to it, even though it had drums and bass and they, they get rid of the drums and bass pretty easily, but use the melodies and stuff. Anyway, so last year, this happened to me like three or four times where like a major producer in hip hop would steal one of my songs and then put it on the night. Then I would have to go sue everybody and fight it. You know what I mean? All that regular crap. Because today that's what the music business is. It's like I can steal your song and, and you won't be able to find me unless you hear it. And then if you do, you have to come and get me. And then, then you have to prove that I did it. That's that's the whole what the whole business is based on right now is robbery. It's like almost everyone's taking that. It's better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. Yeah, like I would confront some of these. Like I would just write the producer of the guy, the guy that was using my song, and go, "Hi, I'm David Bendis. I'm not dead. I'm not dead. I'm actually a record producer still, or the mixer, and you've stolen my song." And so anyway, this happened like three or four times. So I was thinking to myself, well, this is kind of crazy. Like, why don't I just start making my own hip hop loops? And, and I did. So, so my whole thing was like, <laughs> well, it can't be that complicated. I mean, all they're doing is all, all they're doing is taking like recordings and low finding them. And so, Forget about like stealing someone else's recording. I'm just going to make it because how I used to make it. So I called this company. There's a company up in Canada called Kingsway Music Library. And there's a guy that's incredibly, incredibly successful that runs that company called Frank Dukes. I don't know if you've ever heard that name before. But if you haven't, it's somebody you should know. Because Frank Dukes just produced Post Malone. He's done Kanye West. He's done Taylor Swift. He's done... He's a, he's a fine Canadian that's incredibly talented that started this Kingsway Music Library. And I sent him these three or four, you know, examples of people that stolen my shit. And he said, and I, and I get a call back from one of his representatives going, we'd love to have you. So over the last four months, all I've done is make hip hop loops and I've got a pack, a hip hop pack coming out next month of 20 hip hop loops you know, that I made from scratch. And I guess the way that works is that you can buy it for 30 bucks. And then if you want the stems, you know, each individual track, it's 80 bucks. And then if you use it on a record, they got to pay you producer and um, writer credit. So, yeah, I told you I was changing with the times that that's what I've been doing. I've been working actually when I should also, also mention I didn't do this on my own. I went out to Toronto and worked with some incredibly talented people that have worked with Drake and Post Malone and 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 uh, Justin Bieber and like young, young kids that are super talented. That's awesome. I, I was kind of joking very early on when I asked if you were going to dip into the hip hop genre because of just the, the change in the wind. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's rock amazing. became the new jazz. So you, you said that the uh, the hip hop world is is a little bit more challenging than you thought yeah. it would be. What is wow. that challenge? Well, the challenge is to again do something that doesn't sound like anything else. I mean, the instructions from Frank Dukes at the beginning of this project was don't make things that are already there. Try and come up with something special, something different. 
and and the challenging part of it is was sitting in a room with one of these fantastic writers who actually is an incredible piano player pianist and a, and a great you know he's i don't know he's like 25 26 uh, his name's cvre i don't know how we pronounce it maybe it's care uh and actually the first day we started he got a justin bieber cut on he's got justin bieber's new single so he's he's very talented but it was like we would sit in a room for two hours we would play an idea in a certain key at a certain tempo I would play guitar, I would play keyboards, he would play keyboards, synthesizers, and we would just jam. And then we would go back over it and then pick out 30 seconds where it was magical. And then we would take that and then make it into a loop. And then another kid was there, this, this other super talented kid, and he would start to manipulate it and, and shame, make things go backwards and cut edit, you know, chop it. And then the next thing you know, you got a loop. So it wasn't just, a, a, you know, a, a matter of just grabbing 30 seconds. It was a matter of knowing which 30 seconds to grab, knowing what to do with it, and then creating it sonically so that it worked. Now, I haven't had any success yet, and Drake hasn't done, or The Weeknd hasn't done any of my, used any of my loops. But I have to tell you, I'm incredibly excited about this pack, and it comes out in April. That's amazing. I'm really interested to hear it because, you know, I think, one element of hip hop that I, I don't really work with too much hip hop myself, but the drums are obviously something that is like providing that beat is something that is massive in the hip hop world. It's it's the foundation of everything for the most part. And one of the qualities of your work that I've always really admired is the production of your drum tones. I think like especially when it comes to snare sounds like you, you have this great way of getting snares to cut through a mix like while still sounding like really full and like they've got a lot of body and weight to them that's like to me that that has been even though you earlier said that you want every record to sound different i think your your drum sounds have always kind of had this david Bender yeah. tone to them i mean let me explain um, and i was wondering if you could well, share let, some let insight just address yeah. that immediately so when i'm making these hip-hop loops they have no drums or bass on them so it's it's 40 seconds of just music so the idea behind it is that the producer, whoever that is, is going to put their own beat to it and their own bass line to it and their own vocal on top of it. So these are just the musical loops that go behind the track. Now, you can imagine that's like gagging David Bendeth, you know, <laughs> you know no drums <laughs> and no bass. Got it. So when you try and do something and make it interesting like that, you better have some good musical ideas some hooks so it's all about hooks but speaking directly to the drums yeah my favorite records always had always had incredible drums on them and i had a very very high appreciation of of certain records that where the drum sound was just like holy shit how did they get that but i think it started really with somebody like trevor horn you know, or I would listen to Frankie Goes to Hollywood, or I would listen to Grace Jones, Slave to the Rhythm, or I would listen to Scritti Politti. Like, these are real 80s records where people spent a lot more time on the drums. And I, and then, of course, Michael Jackson's records, which, you know, you, you could never understand how they were so full and so big, but they were so dry. There was no reverb. So if you listen to Rock With You and you realize it's just a bass, drums and a guitar basically on it, but it sounds incredible. It always blew my mind how you could mix something like that and make it sound like 
the beat and the groove was forefront. Um, and so that became my challenge, you know, in my own head, like, how do I get drums to do that? And I realized very quickly that it was the combination of having the right guitar sounds and, and the right bass sounds um, that, that accompany the drums, that give the drums that power. And it was never one thing. You know, using the the Paramore record is a great example. People always say, you know, you could get the Paramore drum sound, for example, and put it on a record, but it wouldn't really mean anything unless you had guitars and bass that matched that drums. So it, it was always, the experience was always what I called, you know, um, uh, what would I call it? Full dynamic range. There you go. Something where all of the, the, the instruments uh coincided at your ears at the same time in other words it, it was it was a time align issue and so we we would start to move things around like bass and guitar and vocals so that the drums fit into a slot if that makes any sense to you yeah so are you talking more in terms of like not necessarily the like amp tone but more just like the the actual part itself and and creating space between notes well and that, that and and where the other instruments sit time wise in regard in in regards to the drums where they are so in other words if the guitars are on top of the beat the first thing that goes is the attack of the snare drum if the bass is a little bit wonky you lose your kick drum so it was a matter of moving things around until the drums were at the right place sonically. That that happened to be not just an EQ thing or not just an effects reverb thing or not just a room thing. It became everything. As you're saying that, I'm, I'm hearing misery business in my head and thinking about the guitar line and how it actually sounds in relation to the drums. And you're absolutely right. Like the, there's all these breaks in the parts where the snare just comes through and it's right, like full because blast, of the right? editing, the guitars <laughs> are probably 10 milliseconds behind the drums instead of 10 milliseconds ahead of them. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's how we perceive music. And I think, again, that comes from just experience. Like there's a whole argument. It's not really a secret that most of the great mixers in the world are over 45. Again, we're talking about culmination of experience. If you take a guy like Chris Dordalgi or Serban or whoever it is, Andy Wallace, these people have been mixing records for 30 years. They should be that great. That's all they do. But I'm trying to say is they've also gone down many roads where they've made extremely bad mistakes, I'm sure, earlier on in their career or even maybe 10 years ago. It doesn't really matter because... That's what mixing is. Mixing is knowing instinctually where to go and not guessing. Is the bass, do you have enough bass? Do you have enough vocals? All of those things. Is the background's too loud? Is the blend right? All of those things are mixing. And, and that means you have to have musical, instinctual knowledge. Um, and I don't think that you can be a great mixer until you're 40. There you go. I just said that. That's that's because... <laughs> it's out in the world. <laughs> that, that was a big statement, but I'm really... Yeah kind of being honest because because the truth is if you're a great mixer it means you can mix reggae music and you can mix rock music and you can do heavy metal and gent and you can do a hip-hop song i mean it's truly if you're a great mixer you should be able to do anything yeah because to your point it's the experience yeah right? i mean it's and and well it becomes better than that like let's take a guy like rick rubin who's like a major megalo guy in the music business he doesn't know how to play an instrument 
he's not really, I don't think he does. He's not really a songwriter, but he has a great instinct for music. Like it's through probably listening to a million records. And so he, he developed what we call taste. You know, he, he knows what's great because he's got taste. He's able to pick out taste because he probably listened to all these 60s records and all these 70 records in detail and studied what it was about them that made them great. Well, I totally believe in that. Because it, if you don't know that, then how the hell are you going to apply greatness? What becomes your your vanguard for greatness if, if you don't know anything about music and where it came from? Yeah, it's really interesting, just the idea of studying music because i because i think a lot of us a lot of people just listen to music and they 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 either enjoy it or they don't they they don't necessarily know why they enjoy it or not they just it's a feeling i had this great conversation with arif mardan after he got fired from uh, atlantic records he was about 68 and is he was sitting around doing nothing you know because he was retired and then his friend calls says can you do this record um it's, we've only got a $35,000 budget because it's on a little label. And he said, sure. And he went down to the studio and he sat behind the console for six, seven weeks and made this record. And of course, he won Grammy of the Year um, for this record. I'm trying to remember the artist's name and it slipped my brain, but she was a jazz artist. What's her name? Um, famous. Anyway, <clears throat> so I phoned him up after the record and, and he, Arif Mardan has made some of my favorite records. You know, whatever it was, it was Saturday Night Fever, and he's, he did respect for Aretha Franklin, for Christ's sake. So I called him up and I said, you know, Nora, Nora Jones was the artist. And I said, you know, congratulations on, on your Grammy. That's incredible. She sold 20 million records, whatever the hell it was. And he said to me, David, he says, give me a break. He said, honestly, I did nothing. I just sat behind the console and let greatness happen. And so there was a big lesson in that which is recognizing an artist's ability to do greatness without you and just being there for them to hold their hand through the process because those navigational waters get crazy sometimes when you're not sure of yourself. And if somebody's there that knows that has great taste, like Arif Mon, and if the guy that made respect for Aretha Franklin is telling you that your vocal's okay right now and it's going to work right, then you should shut the fuck up and get back onto the next song. And that's another thing about having experience, because the truth is, and you can quote me on this, they don't pay you for what you have. They pay you for what you know. And you can have the greatest studio in the world with all the biggest gear and all that, but it doesn't really matter unless someone in the room is, is willing to stretch the boundaries and, and take music to another level. Yeah, that's great. Like A lot of great, great nuggets in that. Because, yeah, you're right. Like, sometimes you just have to step back and just appreciate it for yeah. what it is and then, you know, not yes. get in the way. And a lot of producers get in the way and they make it th their record. I, I can see people listening to what you just said about, you know, making space around the snare drum, for example, uh, to make it cut through a mix. Right. And now they're thinking like, well, now I need to every time an artist shows me a song, I got to figure out how to rearrange their guitar parts so that I can make the snare cut through. You know, like there's there's all these like rules that people hear that they they think they have to follow right <laughs> a lot of people talk about my drum sound and you know, going strictly to paramore is a great example i mean this band's like 17 in the studio with me 18 the drummer's like 50 and so i do the first mix which happened to be misery business 
and I've already got the drums cranked in the room. Like they are cranked. And I think it sounds pretty cool. And, you know, we have the band and the A&R guy come in the room and everybody's freaking out because they haven't been in the room all day and they can't wait to hear the first mix of their song. And they listen to it. And what do you think the very first thing they tell me is? Turn up the drums. So my instinct is, of course, you're insane. You know, they're so loud now. Why would you do that? So I remember sitting there, get, listening to my, quote, perfect mix in my head, you know, and starting to move the kicks and the snares and the room mics up a dB to 2 dB and listening to it and going, this is absolutely stupid. And the band are jumping up and down, as is the A&R guy. And so that was the mix. Me, when I listen to it, the drums sound fucking loud, you know, it's like, <laughs> they are, but, but they sound amazing. That, but at, now you listen back to it and they sound really loud, but they sound good. So the whole record was mixed like that, where the band would come in and go more, more drums. And in my head, they were fine. In fact, they were too loud to begin with. But that's the thing about perception. You know, when you get into a studio and you're a producer and you're a mixer, you have to go on your own instincts, of course, but they might not necessarily always be right. Maybe. And sometimes 2DB on, on an instrument is huge and does change the way the future of the record goes just based on a sound that's different. Um, and that's a good example of one. I don't, I don't think it, I think it was the songs that changed it, but certainly the music played a part in it. Um, I think sometimes as producers and mixers, we lose our perspective of what good is and we err on the side of safe because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to make everything, you know, I, I remember working for certain producers back in the day at phase one studio and I, I, my job was to look at the tape machine as an assistant engineer and tell them when they were going into the red, you know, they were overloading the machine. And of course it was wonderful because it just basically broke down the song and made it distorted in some weird, great way. <laughs> and I'll never forget what, I think it was Bob Ezrin that said, he said, do you hear any distortion bendeth? And I was like, no. And he goes, then take some fucking masking tape and put it over the VU meters. <laughs> and all, everything went out the window. You know, the whole theory of distortion was gone. And that was the end of it. I started, I, I kept looking over at the tape machine and all I saw was, you know, doubled masking tape over the VU meters and nothing was lit up. <laughs> and it was like, does it sound good? And, and I was like, God, it sounds fantastic. And then I stopped thinking about technology and how my favorite records started to become ones that broke the rules of recording. You have to ignore all that. You just like people do get so focused on like the visual element of mixing, especially now with like, you know, it being in the box and meters everywhere and, you know, those red lights. Exactly. Right. It's like those things, they're, they're there to like trigger you to make you think you're doing something wrong. But if it sounds good it is good imagine if butch vig turned around on nevermind to kurt cobain and told him he was playing the wrong guitar through he needed a les paul instead of a jazz master or whatever he had jack and and he needed a cleaner sound and 
he was playing sloppy. Imagine if Butch Vig would have done that to Nevermind because he was a, a technically clever producer. You know, Butch Vig was a genius for letting Kurt Cobain do whatever the hell he wanted. And it breaks the rules. Absolutely. You know, even to go even further back, it's the idea of like distortion on a guitar, right? Like back in the day, people might have thought, well, you can't distort a guitar. That's that's wrong. But now listen to what we've got, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, and, and then having Andy Wallace mix that record, who who had mixed Whitney Houston records before that. Andy Wallace had been doing it for years. Andy Wallace took everything messy about the production and, and, and made it into the most incredible package from a mix standpoint. He made it all clearer and understood. I'm sure they didn't like that too much. I'm sure Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain didn't love the record. But Andy Wallace was the one that made it palatable for everybody. Listen, you can go through many records. You take Nine Inch Nails, you know, any of the great music and, and, and the mixers that are involved with it. And it's not simple. It's it's quite complicated. And, and the recordings are quite complicated. And it, and it becomes it becomes an art of making something complicated simple. And that is the most difficult thing to do, much like when you're writing a simple song, it's the hardest thing to do. And I, and I think these days, too, people have this tendency to to because they can add so many elements to it in, in a Pro Tools session and they're not limited to the number of tracks like tape. And, you know, they, they, they do tend to just overload things and add tons of samples and whatnot just to, you know, give it something different and to have it in there. But there is there is something to be said for just keeping it simple. It is. And, and everybody has a different idea of lo-fi. You know, lo-fi started years ago with alternative rock, and now it's become the mainstream for hip-hop. Uh, and and is there, you know, is there great lo-fi? Yeah, there's great lo-fi, and there's terrible lo-fi. You know, it's like, you know, there's certain frequencies that 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 are hits um, that you shake your head, but then you realize how powerful the song is, and you stop thinking about the recording itself because the song is so great. And, and I think that that's very common right now um, and, and part of the magic of the music. Uh, it's great because most most people in their 40s don't like hip hop. You know, they like a lot of people are talking about 80s rock now more than they ever have. And it's old rock. But you have to remember that kids today that are 12 to 16 that that are on, you know, TikTok, whatever they're on where they're getting their music, Spotify, you know, they love the fact that you hate hip hop. In fact, if, if everybody loved hip hop, they would hate it because when we were young, we hated the fact that our parents loved our music. The problem with rock music was that parents liked their kids' music. That's what happened to rock music. So it no longer was a rebellion music. Hmm. It's an interesting take on it. I like that though. It's true. Yeah. There's there's something to be said for the the outsiders and the uh, you know the music that isn't necessarily pop if you like modern pop you know like kind of yeah I think that's why there's somebody like a Billie Eilish or something like that who's coming up with this different sound and you know people are gravitating to it now right yeah and I think deep down secretly if you're in Metallica you're in Slayer you're in I don't know you know Five Finger Death Punch the truth is we all love a great pop song. We do, because it's part of who we are. And I would, I think it's safe to say that there's certain songs, like if you're listening to Rihanna's Umbrella, or you're listening to the girls' song by Beyonce, whatever you're listening to, I don't need a Katy Perry, whatever it is that that there's 
there's just something about it that you go, I love this song. And it's undeniable. And, you know, it's that's part of that's part of who we are as well is is uh, we might do something in the daytime, but there might be other things when we're driving to the beach that we want to do besides what what we do all day. And I think that's the beauty of music, that it's that there's music for certain times in our life, you know. Uh, and I think that that's what you talked about at the beginning of this conversation. I, I think I'm talking a whole lot, but I'm sorry if I am. No, it's, it's great here. You're saying a lot of great things here. But I really feel like, the again, relating to the power of music and what it can do, how it can change the way we feel drastically to, to, to get us through certainly hard times. It is an incredible drug. Absolutely. And music is just, it's an extension of our emotions. And, you know, to think that, you know, the guys that play in these like heavy, heavy metal bands, like to think that they're always the angriest people in the world and that they're just like, you know, punching everybody all the time. Like that's the furthest thing from the truth. They, they love laughing. They love chilling out and like, you know, just loving yeah. life and all that stuff too. Right. We're all human. We all have the same emotions happiness, sadness, all of those emotions are triggered. And the job of a producer today is to trigger and hopefully work with an artist that stands for something. I had the chance actually once to meet Bruce Springsteen. He was at a Breaking Benjamin concert with his son, who, who is the biggest Breaking Benjamin fan or was. This is like, I don't know, 10 years ago. And I'll never forget, we gave him a guitar, the son, his guitar, and he, and he says, who are you? And I said, I'm David Bendetham. The producer, he says, I, I know every Breaking Benjamin song. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? You're Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> Why would you even say that? Yeah. He says, what are you crazy? He says, you live in New Jersey. I drive my kid to lacrosse, to baseball, to hockey, to, to, to everything. What do you think? I don't live near every place. I got a 40-minute drive everywhere. All we listen to is Breaking Benjamin in the car. <laughs> He says, you got a lot of bottom on your guitar, Bendith, and on your bass and a lot of big drums. I said to him, well, yeah, we're in A sharp. You're in E. You know, you, all so I said, well, he starts asking me all these questions about breaking Benjamin records, which I thought was insane. But you know what? He was a father trying to, to appeal to his son's likes. And he had no choice in the carpet to listen to them and sing along to these breaking Benjamin songs, which blew my mind. But I said to him, you know, Bruce, you have to answer me a question now because it's something I've wanted to ask you for a long time. And, and I, I'm not a big Bruce Springsteen fan. I'm going to tell you, I don't have all your records. I love your music, but I'm not. a. That's not what I says. Why is it that you play a four hour show? And he starts laughing. You know? <laughs> Imagine a four hour show. That's a long show. It's exhausting. Every show is four hours. Why do you think, I said, why do you think all these people have come to your four-hour show? Because I couldn't sit. It would be, he looked at me, he says, he says, David, I couldn't sit through four hours of anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> he says, we do. He says, we do take a 20-minute break. He said, we do. He says, you know, it's not four hours straight. We take a 20-minute break. We have a beer and eat a sandwich. And we come back and do another hour. So I said, he says, that's a really, he says, nobody's ever asked me that question. Give me, let me think about it for a minute. <laughs> he went to get a beer and his son's, he says, and he comes back and he says, I know, I think I know why. And he said that when I get on, I walk onto the stage, 
I look at the audience and I see my whole life in front of me. And I look at the audience and they see their whole lives in front of them. And then it no longer is a, a four-hour concert. It's kind of like having all these people in your living room for Thanksgiving that have been for many years. I was like blown away. I feel like that's that's like the perfect thing a Bruce Springsteen could say, right? <laughs> he, he did say that. <laughs> and I was very moved. And I started to love his music a lot more after that. I have to tell you, I started to listen to Nebraska a little more closely. Um, because the power of that is, again, obviously incredibly powerful. You know, and I think the same thing applies to to Post Malone or Kanye West or Taylor Swift or whoever is right now the flavor of the month. The fans are connecting with it in a way that's over and above the norm. Yeah, it goes beyond the artist. Yeah, the songs take on their own life and live forever. So as a, as people that are in a supporting acting role, producers, mixers, engineers, all of that, our job is to realize how important it is for us to do that. And we're not always successful at it. Um, but we have to do that. We have to recognize the importance of our role. Definitely. I, I found it funny that you'd mentioned that Bruce Springsteen commented on the low end in your mix and how you always have like a lot of big bottom end in there. So obviously that's, that is one of the things that appealed to him and that stood out to him. And, and it's something that I've always it's found in your mixes as well. <laughs> he had a good system in his Range Rover. <laughs> <laughs> But but you always car. but you always have had a great way of getting the low end to feel really big and full, but not overpowering in your mixes. And so I was wondering if you can comment a little bit about your approach to bottom end when it comes to either drums or bass and how you get that to to really feel sure. tight but so, still big. The truth is, you know, behind all of that is I how do I even sort of begin to broach this conference? Well, I'm just going to tell the truth. How's that? I was never, ever a great engineer. I, I didn't want to be a great engineer. It was never my goal. The technical side of music was something I, at, at the beginning of my career, I only had bad experiences at where I would start to mix and it would be a nightmare, especially when I was on my own. So I recognized that it was always great to work with a great engineer and then shape the mix the way I wanted to through their hands, if that makes any sense. So I was always very, very, very lucky in my career that I was able to be smart enough to pick fantastic people to work with that were more than willing to go where I wanted to go with something and listen to what I had to say. They would basically set up a mix and then we would just go and then they would leave the room and leave me because I would have the basic elements that I needed to mix it. You know, all of the reverbs and all of the delays all set up on faders and all of the effects. And then I would have everything side changed. But the actual, to start it, to start a mix from scratch and then like spend four hours setting it up and then spend another seven hours mixing it. By the time I, you know, I, I remember setting it up, the last thing I wanted to do is hear the goddamn song again for seven hours. 
because by that time I was completely burned on it. That's the truth. So I had always really through all my mixing work with different people uh, in that role. And I would call them mixing engineers. Certainly they were engineers. Certainly a lot of them were, were mixing engineers in their own right and talented. But I can tell you that the, the, the sort of determination of trying to find sounds and moving things around. Sometimes I did it on my own. Sometimes I would make them do stuff. Sometimes they would have an idea as well. So it would, it would be a, just different combinations, but it was a pursuit of trying to get the biggest bottom end with the biggest drums. Yeah. That was like back then. That was what we wanted to do. And that was hip. And it was, and, and it was like, let's, let's blow this up. And, Basically, what we would always do was always put somebody else's mix up as we were mixing. So it would always be compared. One of the things I love to do more than anything, and I learned this from Jack Joseph Puig because he sat, remember as an A&R guy, I would sit there for all the mixes with all the greats. I would sit there with Andy Wallace and Rich Costi or whoever it was, Tom Lord Algy, Chris Lord Algy, all the big guys. And I would watch how they did it. I had people forget that about me. You know, they, they forget that I got to sit next to greatness every day for weeks on end. I wasn't sitting there making phone calls, eating lunch. I was asking them questions over and over again, learning my craft. Anyway, it was about matching somebody's mix and getting it to where they had it and then beating it. And that was always the goal. So you would start by making it as good as your favorite mixer and trying to match the bottom end and the drums and then expanding that idea. And that's how I did it. That makes sense. Like, what's your stance on samples, for example? Like, are you adding a lot of samples to your tracks and, and using it that would to be, help? It depends on the record. Like, if we had an amazing drummer and he had a great feel, you don't want to screw it at all. You just want to try to, like, leave it and you just lightly add stuff in. Because the minute you start putting samples on snare fills and tom fills with a great drummer that's playing with dynamics you're really getting yourself into some real trouble because you're just sucking the, 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 the performance out of it. So, you know, you would try and work with the best drummer possible and use the least amount of samples. I would say as a rule, probably it would be 60% drums, 40% sample. It would be like to help as opposed to feature. You know, every time I stuck samples in with a shitty drummer that, that, you know, replaced, you know, sound replacement. It was always terrible feeling. Awful. No different than if you start editing a guitar player's DI and you're like trying to put it in time. It's like any kind of feel that's there is gone and you end up listening to everything perfectly in time and it sounds like, you know, like you're in a hospital. I feel like these days, like the music, especially rock music, it's so sample heavy. And and to your point of like getting rid of the, it gets rid of like the feel of a drummer's performance. And then I, I was kind of, as I'm a drummer myself, and whenever I watch a music video and I see a drummer in the video hitting their drums lightly, but then you're hearing this like explosion of a snare drum, I, I can't help but feel like yeah. so disconnected from it. <laughs> well, you know, and to be honest about that, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that I feel like samples and certainly computers and quantizing and digital effects and I could keep going have been in most cases the death of rock 
because they've taken the very element that we love about it and removed it. The imperfections of rock, the beautiful disaster of rock is what made it wonderful and special. And the personality of the player came out. I mean, look, as a kid, I saw Led Zeppelin and I never thought Jimmy Page was a great guitar player. I think people would kill me for saying that. I always liked Jimi Hendrix or Jeff Beck, you know. But people loved Jeff, Jimmy Page. They thought he was the greatest guitar. He was the sloppiest guy live I think I've ever seen. But Jimmy Page made magic. He did. And you can't deny that creatively. It didn't really matter if he was a great guitar player or not. Listen to, you know, listen to the songs he wrote. They were incredible. And his guitar playing really fit well on it. That's what's missing from rock. It's that element of disaster that makes the beauty, or you could say Nirvana, same argument, where Kurt Cobain was never considered to be a great guitar player. He was never a great solo player. But the music that he made matched the, the band and the songs. So that's gone away now from rock, the personality of rock. You know, I sound like an old person, but fuck, it's so true to me. And I don't hear enough of that in music today. You know, the, the element of danger. There's not enough danger. So how do you approach your mixes then? Because obviously there is like a standard that is out there today with like rock radio and all that kind of stuff. And having all of all of that like intensity always being there, but not necessarily natural. Like what's your mindset going into a mix and how do you start? Where do you start? Like what's how do you determine like? Okay, I'm. I, this is going to be a sample-heavy record, just because I, you know, it's going on radio or that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I mean, when you're mixing, you don't have a choice. You know, most mixers that mix records will mix anything; they don't really care. So you mix what you're given. It's it's kind of like when your mother, when you were six, and your mother gave you liver, and green beans, and and broccoli, and said eat, and you knew if you didn't eat, you were going to be hungry, so you ate it. And you hated it. And then when you were 12, you took the plate and you emptied it in the garbage can and starved. So mixing is like <laughs> you're sitting behind the console you're, and you're praying that what you have is great. And what's happened a lot that I think has really kind of changed is, is vocal tuning. Like if you get a great vocalist on a rock song, you're really like 75% of the way home. If it's not tuned that much and the performance is great, it really doesn't matter anymore. Like you stop thinking about how perfect the music is or the samples or the editing. If the, vo if, if, if the tracks are really edited hard and the vocals are really tuned hard, that's a recipe for like, oh, uh, fuck, this is going to be like, you know, very, very generic. So... As a mixer, I think your approach should be simple. It's like you're given what you've got. Your job is to make the best of it. But once you're getting it in a mixing stage, there's nothing you can do about it. But make it sound the best you can. That's your responsibility to the client. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the optimum way to do it. I mean, there's so many songs I've mixed in my career that I wish were done a certain way that would have made them way better songs. But I think that that's part of music as it passes through us. Our, our job is to do the best we possibly can with what we have. 
and pray that it does well. So then in your opinion, what makes a great mix? Like, how do you know when you're done it? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, how do you know when to stop? I mix differently, I think, probably than a lot of people. I I start with the drums and then I get the drums to a place I want to get them. Or, or if I'm working with loops, I get them to where, I'm, where I want them. And then the next thing I do is add the vocals. So there's never any guitars or keyboards or anything. Background vocals. Just put the lead vocal in with the drums. And, and then I learn the song. And of course, I demand a lyric sheet because I think it's absolutely insane to mix a song without a lyric sheet. Because how the hell do you know what you're talking about? Exactly. <laughs> and so that, that emotion has to be, the mixer has to understand what the song's about and emote that feeling from it with empathy for the lyric. And then bounce into the vocals, you know, get them to sit in a place where they're comparable to the drums at ballpark. And I mark it off with tape, first thing I do. And then I put in everything but the guitar main guitars which is left rights you know i put in the overdub guitars maybe if there's parts in the verses and i see where they should sit and then i i find that it's very important for me to move if something's on the right side i'll move to the left side physically and if i can't really hear it then i know that it's too low if i'm on the opposite side which is another advantage of working on a console you can move and or you can you know walk outside of the room if it's on the left side and the door's on the right you close the door and you say can i hear it i mean all, all of our work we do sitting in front of two speakers which is insane you know just stupid because music is not listened to like that unless you're in a car but once i get everything in i mix usually eight bars at a time like stitching sections together. Is that because you process different sections differently or? Totally. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're introducing new facets to the mix. You know, it might be a guitar on the right side. It might be a keyboard line. It might be in the second chorus. You know, you've got a, a line coming in in the second half of the chorus. You know, you want to, everybody that records these days puts everything in all the time. Well, mixing means it's not supposed to be. You know, you're building your song. You, you don't have to have everything generically all the same every time you hear a chorus. So what you like to do is introduce new elements and make it interesting to listen to, to the listener so that you're taking them on a three and a half, four minute journey. The biggest issue with songs today is the last chorus. Because nobody thinks about the last chorus. They make it like the first or the second one when they're recording. And that's really, really bad. Because it doesn't make you want to listen to the song again. There has to be some interjection of something original in the last chorus or the last outro or the last 30, 40 seconds of a song that make you want to hear it again. And if you're basically just pasting and sticking something that's already been there, then it shows you have no imagination to your mix. Yeah, I remember going to a songwriting conference a couple of years back and they were talking about just the natural way people like the way people listen to music these days. And, you know, they typically get to that two minute marker where a bridge usually has to ha happen because otherwise people are bored. Right. So you need to do something with your bridge to just change it up and, you know, get add these new elements to it. And then it makes sense that, you know, now people are used to listening to some bridges, but to hear a chorus again, you know, you don't want to go back to the same boring thing they heard earlier. You have to add on top of that and make your mix reflective of that as well. Well, that, again, that's another thing that kind of killed rock is like there was no bridges. 
like a band would be writing a song in A in a key, you know, tuning to A tuning, and then they would get to the bridge, and the bridge would be in A, <laughs> and then they'd get to the last chorus, and it would be in A. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what kind of a journey is that? So it sounds like you, uh, you've really defined, like, really refined your process as a mixer, and you know, it's it sounds like you're you're very methodical about what you're doing inside of your mixes. And I'm curious, like you had mentioned earlier that some people have have said negative things about your mixes and, you know, tried to almost put you down being like, this doesn't sound that great. But like, at what point did you start to feel like you were making good mixes? And what point did you just blow past all of that criticism and just feel confident in, in what you're doing? I think it really happened when I had about five different labels telling me my mixes sucked. And the artist told me that they liked the mix but it was out of their hands. And so I recognized immediately that there were certain elements that I had no clue on because I'm not an engineer. That's not, again, what I, I studied guitar. I studied songwriting. I studied production. I did not study engineering. It was not an important, I had a very good knowledge of it, but I never was passionate about it. I, I never felt the passion to, to be an engineer to set up microphones and to make sure the phasing is correct and to make sure that that the recording levels are good and make sure that the the path and you know the chain was correct and make sure that the equipment was working all of that to me was like bogging down having fun <laughs> you know it's all of the complicated things that you know so I, I think it was really just uh, knowing that the vibe was right and and so when I learned from all these people that my mixes were weak, I wanted, to, I really wanted to know the truth. That was important to me. I probably learned that in high school. You know, I, was, I didn't like the truth a lot of the times. But if somebody was going to say something about me, I, I always respected people that said it to my face because it showed a lot more character. And especially when somebody says it with love, you know, if you think somebody has the ability to do something great, but they're doing it wrong. And you can help that person by guiding them. Um, then, and, and you respect that person that's telling you the information. Then I think it's fantastic. And you can learn something. So I started to learn what it was about my mixes that people didn't like. And one of them was excitement. One of them was the bottom end was a mess. One of them was the vocal levels were all over the place. One of them was it just didn't sound competitive. I mean, each person would tell me a different thing, why it sucked so bad. The frustration for me as a producer was getting mixes back that when they would come back to me, all those things were, quote, fixed. And I hated every one of them. That's the truth. So I ended up being a better mixer out of hatred for the mixes that I would get on my own songs. I just <laughs> never liked them. So I was forced into it. Because if I'm like, if you say to somebody, look, I don't like your mix, you have to tell them why you don't like it. And I used to have, I used to have pages of things I hated about them. <laughs> and after a while, you get sick of telling someone that there's 52 <laughs> things you hate. That's fair. <laughs> so you end up, what I ended up doing was after I would get a mix, I would do it again myself. And that's how I learned. I would do what they did. I tried to do what they did and then make it better. Yeah. I mean, I would start at a point. So you have to start at a point doing what they do. If you don't know how to do that, 
then you're never going to make it better. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying about studying other mixing engineers and watching them use reference yeah. tracks and comparing their stuff, right? It's it's the exact same experience. I learned that very, I was lucky to learn that very early. I was watching a guy called Arif Mardan, the guy I mentioned before that did Nora Jones mix a song by Shaka Khan. And it was at Atlantic Studios in New York. And he had this huge Neve console and two tape machines going 48 tracks. And it had drums, bass, guitars, background vocals, keyboards, mini mook. It, it was, had so many different elements to it. And he sat there with this engineer and he shaped every single sound. So he carved out places where the music should go with EQ. And I remember it, it, it was a miracle. Like, I'd never heard or seen anything like that before. Now, I didn't know how to do it. And Arif had been doing it for already 30 years, but maybe not that long at that time because this was in the 80s. But, but I learned that music has to make way for certain things at certain times. And I knew what it was. I just didn't know how to do it, if that makes any sense. So, you know, having everything loud all the time is not a good idea. <laughs> you know, it's like you've got to make make holes and spaces for things. So I started to work with imaging differently, imaging how many things I would have in a certain time. I mean, people say to me on my records all the time, they'll listen to a record and say, how, how many times did you overdub that guitar to make it sound like that? And I'd say, there's just two guitars, but they have to be the right two guitars with the right two amplifiers. And I feel like that's a lot of it is the way things are recorded to begin with. You know, the minute you start EQing the shit out of out of recording a guitar, when you start doing it, you're already making the biggest mistake there is because you're just adding noise to your source. You're not you're not giving it a clear path. You know, if you record something and you're going through a Neve and a compressor, whatever you're going through or, a, you know, or an SSL, whatever it is, the idea is to get make it sound fantastic before you start recording without doing anything to it. That's mic placement, the right strings, the right guitar player, the right guitar. All of those elements change. That. It's being a producer and having that vision and, and yeah, creating it. And not, and not letting anything get by you. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that's a great spot to end because it, it kind of sums up everything, you know, from production to mixing and, and just thinking about the big picture and how do you get those emotions and, and get that feeling and, you know, putting it all together to really present it properly, you know? I think that this has been a lot of fun and I'm sorry if I talk too much. No, no worries. I've been taking this all in. It's amazing. I think there's a lot of great stuff in here that just really touches on a lot of important parts of the process. It's, you know, the making a record isn't just doing one thing. It's, it's a combination of lots of different thoughts and preparations that go into it, right? It is. And, and, I don't know if I told you this or not, but right now I'm teaching the master's course at the Berkeley School of Music in Boston in production. I'm teaching a, a, a remote class, you know. And so I'm learning a lot, too. Obviously, I'm dealing with master people that have graduated Berkeley and they're going on into the world. And so you're learning a lot as you're teaching. And that's been a real eye opener for me, too. I mean, it's been fantastic working with the next generation of great greatness firsthand every day. Yeah, when you teach it, it almost forces you to break down your process. Yes. And then you learn about how what they're doing. 
which is also sensational because they're they're great musicians to begin. You no, know, they're all people that can read music and play an instrument and very very talented. Well, for people who maybe want to learn more about you and follow the work you're doing, how can they follow you online? I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, and I have a website, davidbendis.com. Awesome. And uh, lastly, any cool projects that you're working on currently that you may be able to talk about? Right now, I'm very excited about a plugin that I have that came out this week, the STL uh, Tone Hub, which is a guitar plugin that I've been working on for a long time and was a vision I had about three years ago. I worked, uh, I went, went with a company called STL and there we made uh, Kemper profiles and we've transferred them now all of them over to a plugin which came out this week, well, Friday, which I'm very excited about. Uh, I'm very excited about my Kingsway Music Library Hip Hop Pack, which comes out in the middle of April. I'm teaching the master's course of Berkeley in production, and I'm mixing. And that's that's mostly what I'm doing. Not a lot of production these days, as I've shifted to to more of what I feel is relevant. And of course, song, a lot of songwriting, a lot of songs. That's great. Yeah, I, I noticed the STL tone thing come out this week and uh, I've been meaning to check it out. So I, I will definitely dive into that. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for all of this. Like, it's incredible the amount of uh, knowledge bombs you dropped here. I think <laughs> <laughs> just it's it's a great so. insight into what goes into everything you've done. And I think that your your story is very inspiring. It It has a lot of twists and turns. And I think that that's something that people need to hear as well, because it's not just one linear path to the top or something, you know, it's, it's, it involved a lot of ups and downs and a lot of changes. And it does. And, and, and my advice to everybody out there is to always believe in yourself. Never say never. A lot of the things that happened in my career, you know, I would never, ever have imagined they were just dreams and things that, that were unobtainable. But if you're committed to your craft and you love what you do and you keep working really, really, really hard on it and put in those hours, you know, after 10,000 hours of doing anything in life, you get to be great at it. And I just, you know, just tell everybody to believe in themselves and seek advice, get you know, learn something from other people that are willing to share and pass the torch. Absolutely. That, that's great advice. Well, David, thanks again. Thanks again. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. I'll speak to you later. I'll talk soon. So there you have it. That was my interview with David Bendeff, and what an incredible story. I think it's really inspiring to hear from someone like that who has had that many twists and turns in their path and has, you know, gone from being a musician to being an A&R guy to, you know, getting in the producer chair to working in multiple genres and to be constantly expanding on the work that he does and pushing his limits and learning new things. I think it's really incredible to hear that story. Plus, I've always been a massive fan of David's drum sound, so it was really fun to get to chat with him about that and to understand a little bit more about his philosophy on how to make drums sound big and creating space in the production and the arrangement to allow those drums to cut through the mix. I thought that was really cool and a very great way to describe his process and definitely something that I'm going to be thinking a lot more of on future projects that I work on. 
Now, if you found this episode inspiring and encouraging and you want to start working on your own mixes and taking a deeper dive and getting your mixes to sound more polished and more professional, I'm currently offering a free download for you that I would love for you to check out. It's called The Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, and it's a guide that I've put together that shares how to use EQ and compression in your mixes. And you can check it out at masteryourmix.com forward slash blueprint and check it out. It's entirely free. It'll help you get over any frustrations that you've had regarding mixing. If you're not sure of what to do, what to boost, what to cut, where to compress, what kind of settings to use, it will all be laid out for you inside of this blueprint. So definitely make sure to check it out. And if this is your first time listening to the Master Mix podcast, make sure to please subscribe to it so that you can get notified of any new episodes as they come up. And if you're feeling extra generous, I would love it if you could leave a rating and a review on the Apple podcast app. This just helps me grow the podcast and expand it to a bigger audience so that more music can be created in this world. That's my goal here is to help musicians like yourself be inspired and to create amazing sounding music from your home studio and feel comfortable and confident putting it out in the world so that you can make a bigger impact and that you can grow your music career and you can inspire other musicians and help people along the way through the message of your songs. So that's it for today's episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end here. I really do appreciate it. And I really look forward to talking to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. Thank you.